Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Now, today's guest is Heather Wetzler, who will be coming on and talking about a organization she founded, Q Career, and it is a great site. It was awesome going through and checking out everything that was on there, and I wanted to bring her on to share her journey into entrepreneurship, share what Q Career is all about, uh, get some other gems uh, from her that if you are thinking about doing something similar, what can you learn and gain from her journey? And if you have already started and you might not be getting the traction that you think you should have by now, hopefully Heather will have something that will help you uh, make that pivot to get to where you want to be. So for those who be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Simplecast, and Spotify, will you please introduce yourself, Heather? Sure. I'm Heather Wetzler. I'm the co-founder of Q Career, and we are based in Santa Monica, California. And what Q Career is, is we're a career exploration and workforce development platform, helping students find career paths and link to resources to help them get into those career paths. So I'm always curious as to how do people get to where they are. So what did you think you would be doing you were, when you were growing up and how did you find yourself in the field of education? Sure. So, you know, I think like most people, you know, unless you go to school to become a doctor, <laughs> right, what you end up going to school for usually isn't what you end up working in, right? Unless it's a really specialized field. But even people that a lot of times go to school to be a lawyer, I know a lot of people that, you know, got their JDs and are not practicing law. <laughs> um, and that's a big investment. So, you know, I'm one of those rare people who, uh, you know, 10 or 12 kind of knew what I wanted to do, or so I thought. I, um, grew up watching 60 Minutes with my parents. I'm an only child. Um, we watched a lot of news programs, um, but 60 Minutes was really my favorite. So I was born in 1972. So even though 60 Minutes is still on the air now, you know, it, it, it was a little bit different, right? It was really the only long form kind of journalism program out there that would do really in-depth pieces. So when I went to college, I primarily focused on schools that had good journalism programs. So I did, I looked at Syracuse and I did get in, but I ended up going to SMU in Dallas, Texas, um, because it was a smaller college. Um, and I went to a small Catholic high school. So my graduating class was eight. So I kind of thought I'd be overwhelmed at Syracuse. So I ended up at SMU and it was an amazing journalism program. Like most of my teachers actually that taught there were professionals from within the Dallas community in the field. We actually had one of the anchors from ABC News in Dallas, which was WFAA, um, was one of my teachers. Um, so that, that was invaluable. Now, when I graduated, finding a, a journalism job um, is quite difficult because you have to really start in a small market, right? And even then, like, you know, and you had a real, I mean, it's just not, it's not easy to break into. And I think that was one of the things where 
where that fell down. I had a great education and I knew the basics of it, but I didn't really know how to break into that field. Um, and I ended up um, actually moving to Vail, Colorado for a while and working in TV there. Um, and then moving back to New York City um, and doing some new stuff with, um, I'm actually News 12 in Connecticut out of Norwalk. And then during the day working in TV, but not in news. I was doing um, like basically daytime programming for Lifetime TV. Um, and you know, it's feast or famine. Like TV is, um, you had no benefits, no health benefits if a show gets canceled. Um, it's, you know, it's very much feast or famine. And the journalism really started to change then. I remember Bill Cosby was actually shooting his, I guess, like second show out of the same studios that we were in. And it was right when his son was murdered, who, and he was killed in, in LA, but Bill Cosby was shooting in New York in um, Kaufman Astoria Studios in Queens, which is where we were shooting. You know, and I remember just like all the journalists like just were swarming, like trying to get into a building in the morning was a nightmare. And I'm like, I don't want to be one of those people. Like, I don't want to be the person that shoves a microphone in your face and asks, you know, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, so for me, I ended up, you know, randomly finding a sale an advertising sales job after after um, after the journalism and TV thing just wasn't, you know, I became disillusioned with it. And then you know, from there, I ended up going into internet advertising sales because in the late 90s, obviously, the internet was taking off. Um, so a lot of it was right time, right place and who I knew. Right. So and from from there, you know, my entrepreneurial, I guess, you know, um, you know, journey kind of started because I mostly worked for internet startups, right? So I kind of got used to that mentality. Some of them made it, some of them didn't, you know, none of them were mine, right? But my family would joke with me. They're like, so you went from TV, which wasn't a stable career, <laughs> you know, to like, what kind of like salesperson doesn't have a stable career? Usually sales is the most stable, right? But the internet, you know, like I got in, it was like the bubble, like all these companies had like a ton of money and then like the bottom fell out there. Um, but I got, you know, I guess what really I got used to was um, working in unstable conditions, right? So you could even look at my TV career preparing me for entrepreneurship because um, entrepreneurship is definitely not stable, <laughs> right? There's a lot of, you have to kind of be very uncomfortable with the unknowns. Mm. So where does your interest in career exploration come from? And what was the story behind you co-founding Q Career? Sure. So um, my husband and I actually founded it. Um, so we're crazy. So we're all in because we're both doing this full time. <laughs> so um, there's that. Um, but so my husband and I volunteer a lot in the underserved communities. Um, you know, we were doing stuff for Black Girls Code, but NIFTY really won our hearts. You know, NIFTY stands for teaching entrepreneurship and it brings entrepreneurship curriculum to underserved um, middle schools and high schools as a curriculum. And, you know, what we were finding was like what these kids were learning with that curriculum was amazing. Um, but what we were also seeing is, you know, everyone, when they think of education, especially now, they like to talk about the skills gap. But what we were really seeing was there was an opportunity and exposure gap. And that needs to be solved before the skills gap. And what I mean by that is quite often students are only exposed to typical career domains, lawyer, teacher, doctor, and whatever your parents do for a living. 
And that's true whether you come from a super wealthy family or, an un or you know, from an underserved community. Like your exposure to careers is limited. And how do we expect students to prepare for careers if they don't know the careers that are out there, right? So if we don't know, if we don't expose them to the careers that are out there, you know, and then kind of just willy-nilly kind of send them off to figure out their higher education, like that's just never going to work, right? So we have to really start exposing them super early. And, you know, you can kind of take this from the advertising model, right? Like when I was working in internet advertising sales, car companies are, are marketing to students very early. They want to get their brands out there. They want brand awareness, right? Well, industries have to start doing that with careers, right? If we want to adequately prepare students for careers, we have to get them exposed to the careers that are out there and talk to them about the skills that are needed. And, and education, right? Not every career needs a four-year education. Some require, you know, two-year and a certificate. There's vocation schools. But if we're not talking to them about that, it's not possible for them to prepare for that. Hmm. So how did you get started in entrepreneurship? I know right now, you know, entrepreneurship is the sexy thing. You know, you have <laughs> your Tim Ferriss and your Gary uh -huh. V and so many people out there who are on YouTube and LinkedIn and, and they're just, you know, evangelizing and talking about the gospel of entrepreneurship. But the truth of the matter is, it's not cut out for everybody. And, yeah. you know, so you had this career mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it's like, oh, let's do this. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm like, oh, so how did that come about? And um, how did you discover that you actually had a talent for it? Sure. So um, I don't know if I necessarily have a talent for it, right? I think it's more um, that I'm willing to live with the unknowns and be uncomfortable um, and look, you know, and like when one maybe tests or, you know, beta test fails to be able to pivot and keep moving forward, right? I mean, true entrepreneurship is like, you kind of keep moving forward. It's kind of an endurance game, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So for me, you know, so, you know, all of us need to be lifelong learners, right? So for me in my sales jobs, what I was seeing was that, like I kind of peaked at what I was doing. So like I was the vice president of an advertising sales company. Um, it was called Deviant Art. Um, other than my career, you know, of my me co-founding a company was probably the best startup I ever worked for. You know, I was helping students um, or kids really in art and you know, it was an artist community. It was really amazing. Um, you know, but after I left there, the industry really started to change, right? And I started to see, you know, that I was starting to feel more and more uncomfortable with the data collection that was going on in the industry. And essentially, instead of kind of like doing branding and selling ads, we were essentially selling data, right? And we saw that play out in the 2016 election, right? About how mm, dangerous that can be in certain ways, right? So, you know, morally, I kind of started having an issues with what I was doing, Right. So it was kind of like, well, now what? Right. And the industry is starting to change and everyone's industry is going to start to change, you know, and everyone's going to feel discomfort and you're going to have to keep learning. Right. So it was, do I go into another industry or, you know, so when my husband and I identified this problem, you know, one thing 
that we kind of did not want to do is we did not want to sell into schools. We wanted the product to be free for schools and students. Um, right. We looked into starting a nonprofit and that seemed like a nightmare in and of itself. <laughs> right. And then, you know, we kind of looked and saw that every industry has a governing association, right? Professional and trade association. And when we started digging in and doing research, and I think this is how most, you know, entrepreneurs start, is you have to really research the market. So when we started researching it, we're like, wow, there's over 100,000 professional and trade associations. Um, last year, they did 150 billion with a B in revenue combined, and yeah. they're trying to reach students, right? So it became, all right, well, what if we create a product for them to reach students and we're the vehicle and then we could remain free for schools and students, um, you know, because investing in ed tech, getting ed tech dollars is hard. Um, investors and VCs really shy away when you're selling into schools because it's a long, tedious sales cycle, right? And the return on your investment for investors is a lot longer than other investments. So we're like, well, if we can sell to associations, we still fit into the ed tech space, but we're kind of turning the model on its head. So we literally, so not to get too made up, meta, but there is an association that associations belong to. It's called ASAE. It's the American Society of Association Executives. And every August they have a conference. So literally in, um, and their conference is in August every year. So literally in August of 2016, we bought a booth and we stood there with just a computer and we had a clickable UX, <laughs> right? So not even like a website, right? It was like, you know, a prototype. And we we're like, hey, if we build this, will you pay for it? And essentially the first five associations that came up to us and was like, absolutely, we brought on to do our beta test. And then we took that beta test out to students. So, I mean, it is a two-sided, which most ed tech companies are, you know, it's a two-sided marketplace um, and education. And, you know, and, it, and that was hard, right? It was hard, but, um, you know, just being willing to kind of go back and forth and trying to get revenue um, as quickly as possible, just like some money coming in, um, was super important. Because mm. I was just wondering, you know, when I was at your site and I saw free. <laughs> For schools. Uh -huh, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> free? But how do you make money? Because <laughs> free, free doesn't mean profit. So I was just wondering, like, how did you, you know, how do you brought money in? So, you know, we're not the, so we're not the first ones to think about the career exploration side, but what we were seeing other companies do was they're all coming at it from the corporation standpoint. And where I thought that was flawed was that it would always be the, all the usual suspects. It's the big companies that can pay. It's the IBMs, Coca-Cola's, Google's, Facebook's. That is not where most people work. Most people are, in, are employed by small to medium-sized businesses. So it really lose its effectiveness to students, right? So we didn't want to charge the schools um, and we didn't want the corporations, right? But the associations to us was the perfect client. And the fact that they were trying to reach students and that they have money and that they set aside money to reach students and haven't been able to do it effectively. For us, we thought that was like the most effective way because they're, they're corporation agnostic, right? They're corporations and, and members pay member dues and then they have a lot of conferences um, and that's how they make their money. But 
you know, they're not going to push one business over the other, but they represent that industry. They're the ones that are coming up with the governing regulations, the laws, and they, you know, and every association's mission statement is to educate the public about that industry and attract new talent to work in that industry, right? That is what they were supposed to do. So for us, by connecting students to the associations, we really thought that was a win-win. Mm. Now, to be clear, when we were starting and when I was pitching this to investors, everyone thought we were crazy, right? Everyone's like, oh, association. You know, I mean, basically a third of the associations are based in Washington, D.C. So if, if you live and work in Washington, D.C., and I was having this conversation, it was completely different than if I was having this conversation with someone in San Francisco, right? So who did not know what the association was, right? They're like, well, like, what's an association? Like, what do they do, right? Now that we've been doing this for a while, and I think in, in associations are starting to get more play in articles, like the Chronicle of Higher Education about different things that they're doing with community colleges. Now people are like, oh, what you guys are doing is so smart, right? But to be clear, <laughs> when we were first starting, you know, and probably could have really used the money too, like when we were first starting, um, you know, everyone was kind of poo-pooing the idea. So the other thing too is like, when you do your research and you really believe in what you're doing, you know, you can't let the naysayers get you down, right? Like that can't be a stopping point for you. Mm -hmm. So how did you, or what has helped you get Q career to take off? Sure. So, and this is one of the things that we do actually on our platform and that we are, are helping students with. So, you know, one of our passions was like, when we're talking and helping students figure out career paths, we're also talking to them about building social capital, so especially kids in the underserved community. You land your first job or your first internship by who you know, right? And associations are built in networks, right? And whenever we're like an in-school or even like live streaming into schools, one thing I talk to students about, I was like, that networking never stops. <laughs> you know, so for us, right, the networking was like when we first started, we would look for like every ed tech, you know, conference or meetup or what have you in whatever area we were in and we would go, right? And again, like not everything paid off right away, but when people are starting to see you again and again and again and they realize you're not going away, and they see that you're surviving, relationships start to happen. Now, you know, we, we have family in both um, the New York area and as well as the Washington DC area. So we camped out a lot in both of those areas, you know, and we would just go to a ton of events, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and try to start partnering with people. The great thing about the ed tech space is, you know, Unlike other startup verticals, it's a lot more collaborative than it is competitive. You know, and don't get me wrong, like, you know, you are competing for, for dollars um, and in different and eyeballs and all that stuff in different spaces. But, you know, as you start to build partnerships, that really helps. You know, so one thing that really helped us was there is an accelerator in Boston called Learn Launch. Um, and they also, and they're very unique because they have a nonprofit arm and they put on um, a large conference, conference every January in Boston. But they also have co-working space where whether you're part of their accelerator or not, you can go and sit in that space, right? So if you're just sitting with other ed tech companies, you still have other partnerships and introductions and all that stuff happening. 
Um, they have been, we did go through their accelerator. Um, Gene Hammond, who's one of the co-founders, um, has just been an amazing mentor, right? And, and she helps everyone. I mean, the nice thing that I like about the learn launch model is like, you don't have to like go through their accelerator to get help, right? Like mm. they believe in education technology. They believe that this space is right for disruption. They want to help students get a better and more affordable education. Um, and if you have a good idea, like, and they have different workshops throughout the week that are free, you know, like you can just show up, they have talks, they have all of that. So whenever we were in New York City, we would look at their schedule and if it made sense, we'd either take the train or rent a car, you know, or not necessarily fly because flying was usually too expensive, but we would get there and use their resources. And again, just getting to know them, that has been amazing. You know, so I mean, like people on the East Coast or even just trying to get there. We've seen some companies like relocate to the Boston area just to take advantage of their resources. So when you, when schools or students visit your site, what will they see? And how, and what is the type of investment that you make with schools? Sure. So, you know, there's two different ways that people use our site as it is right now. Um, so right now, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the career exploration, you know, that leads to workforce development opportunities um, and also the, the social capital building. So as a student, you know, you'd kind of explore by industry and then you'd watch a video, right? And in the video, it kind of outlines like what you actually do in that career. So when we onboard an association, what we do for them is we create a student-friendly page because most associations' websites uh, look like they are built 20 years ago. They probably were. And while a lot of them have amazing resources for students, they're buried. Like someone would have to be you know, really ambitious to find, you know, some of the resources. So when we sat with students, we're like, what do you want to know? So number one, not surprising was career outlook. Is this career growing? If I go into it, is it going to be around in 10 years? Number two is education needed. Do I have to go to a four-year school or can I go to a two-year school? Is there, you know, a credentialing program, you know, and number three is like, what resources do you have, right? So when we after we create the student friendly page for the association we ask them for three members willing to be interviewed so not someone who works at the association but someone who's working in the industry who's a member of the association and here we talk to the association about two different things too age i was like do not give me someone old because like that student is you know the student really wants to know what are they going to be doing right when they graduate from college so i really want someone in the first three to five years of their career Number two, diversity, right? So if we bring on a banking or manufacturing um, company, you know, or something that tends to be older white male, I'm like, do not give me three white men to be interviewed, right? I'm like, give me, you know, find your members who are not <laughs> white men. Um, so, and then we have paid student interns from around the country and they're the ones that do the interview, right? So essentially what they're asking that person is, you know, what, like, what do you do every day, right? Because students really don't know, like, what do you do when you get to work, right? <laughs> and then, you know, the next question they ask is what high school or college classes helped you? Hmm. You know, or, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Which ones do you wish you would have taken, right? Because they're trying to figure out, like, 
all right, what am I going to be doing every day? Is that something I really want to be doing? You know, what's going to help me, you know? Um, and then we talked to him about jobs and internships, like what skills, like, or extracurricular activities do I need to do that's going to help me? Um, you know, and then like, just like what surprised you about this career? And then the benefits of the association, we had them talk about like the networking benefits um, and then the other stuff that the association has to offer. Now, a lot of these associations offer scholarships. So we have a banking association on board, for example, and they set aside $200,000 of scholarship money for anyone majoring in economics, finance, or accounting. You don't even have to go into banking, right? Wow. And students didn't know about that. That money was just sitting there and they kind of dole it out in like, you know, between five and $8,000 a semester, right? So, I mean, that's money that could really help students and they have free student membership. Um, the American Welding Society, they put aside a a million dollars a year for scholarships, right? So we just had one of our student interns who's going to UVA, he's majoring in computer science. He actually just did an interview with someone who works at the American, or someone who is a member of the American Welding Society. And I get this text from him after the interview and it's like, he's like, I hope you don't mind, but like I ended up speaking to him for 20 minutes after I'd finished interviewing him. Because again, he was so fascinated about that by that career. And again, it probably takes, you know, the same skill set, you know, to be a welder, you know, and computer science, right? It's that, it's that brain, um, you know, that side of your brain that's uh, communicating that stuff, you know, and he ended up writing a great article about it and posting it on LinkedIn, right? So, and again, like he just was never exposed to that, you mm -hmm. know, that mm -hmm. career. And he was so excited to talk to that professional afterwards, you know, and then, um, the other thing that we're, you know, helping students do or, you know, for high school students, what we're doing is we, so we also do live streams, um, you know, so for CTE month, we did a bunch and we're really focused in on um, different CTE classrooms, like be it healthcare or woodworking or manufacturing, you know, and here we could reach a lot of schools at the same time, but especially mm -hmm. schools in rural areas, right? So, we did one around um, woodworking and manufacturing, um, you know, and it was two young people, right? So the girl actually worked in marketing um, at like a surfboard manufacturing plant. And then um, the guy worked at a different one, you know, but had like tattoos like up and down his arms. And like when he was doing the interview, he stood up, you know, so there's like these two young, hip, cool people, you know, and then all these um all these schools from around the country opted in, you know, during that time, because obviously we had to set a time and, you know, time zones across the country, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, they roll. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, we have probably, like, I don't know, like 35 schools or something, like, you know, jump on. And then the teachers type in questions live from their classrooms, right? So without a doubt, <laughs> every question that comes up for every live stream that we do is, um, is salary, Right. And again, like, and we don't couch that. So like if I'm the moderator, um, you know, we're trying to get our students to moderate it, but you know, again, sometimes they're in class, right? So that doesn't always work out. So, you know, I was the moderator and, you know, I just prepare the panelists beforehand. Like, look, like, you know, students want to know, like, if I pursue this, am I going to make a living, a livable wage? Right. I mean, sometimes they ask, do you make a lot of money? <laughs> you know, and like one nice thing that we did was like, we had one panel where there was like five people on the panel, you know, and everyone answered that question differently. Like everyone worked in this, in the same industry, but in different aspects of it. So students mm -hmm. got to see different career paths that made different salaries, you know, and then they could base their, you know, how they pursue their education from there with a lot more knowledge. Mm. So as someone who 
is now working in ed tech who does not have a traditional background in education, who is n- has not been a classroom mm-hmm. uh, teacher. What is the greatest lesson you've learned about teaching and learning and preparing students for this age of digital disruption? I mean, for me, it's really about reaching the students and getting um, the tools in front of them and speaking their language. You know, I mean, look, like I'm an older white woman, right? So, I mean, if I go into a school, like in an underserved community, and I'm just like, you know, kind of banging the drum about social capital, right, or careers, it might not resonate with them, right? So we need to start, you know, speaking the language and drawing that path out better for students, right? Like, you know, I was in one one underserved um, one underserved community at a high school, and the teacher said to me, "Heather, these students don't understand careers; they only know jobs. Like, their families have jobs; like, they're hustling, right?" So I'm like, "Okay, like, you know." Um, so trying to explain to students like, hey, like here's, here's, you know, this is a difference between a career and a job. You know, this is why building your social capital at your age is important, right? Because like one thing we see is like when we're in elite schools is students who are 14 are already building a network, right? They see their parents doing it. Maybe they're going to charity events with their parents. They're watching their parents network. Students from underserved community do not have that luxury. And unfortunately, if they don't start to learn how to network and build their social capital at 14, they end up way behind, right? So even if they end up going to amazing, amazing schools, a lot of them end up underemployed because they don't have the network to land their first job, right? So we're trying to explain that to them in a way where you're, you know, A, not talking down to them, obviously, but also in a way where it's going to resonate with them, right? So for us with the associations, we're like, hey, here's here's a built-in network, right? Here's some things you could do to link to these associations. Oh, and they have scholarship money, right? Like, let's talk about what that looks like for you. Like, so if you think like this career is out of reach, like, let's look and see, you know, where that money is. And, you know, that's why we want to be the resource for teachers too. Like, you know, so many people try to put this on teachers, like teachers are busy, right? Like they don't need another you know, curriculum, another thing. I mean, the reason why I like Nifty probably, like their curriculum so much and wish it was in every, you know, school is it is teaching students entrepreneurship, right? And again, like not every everyone is going to be an entrepreneur, but it, what it's also teaching them is soft skills, right? It's teaching them that they have to network, right? That they have to like do a presentation. They have to do the research. They have to do a P&L, you know, so in like almost any business that you go into, like, you know, eventually you're going to have to do a P&L, like you're going to have to know how to market, like you're going to have to know those business skills, right? So like, why not like, you know, have economics classes, adopt the Nifty program and, mm-hmm. you know, have all students learn how to do that, right? Do we expect that they're all going to be entrepreneurs? Like, absolutely not. But like, do they all need those skills? Yes. Like all these employers always come out and say, you know, our students nowadays don't have the soft skills, right? So, what, you know, that's what, stud- what, what schools should be teaching, you know, students too, is those soft skills, you know, and explaining to them, like, why it's important, right? Mm. So earlier you, you mentioned a resource uh, that you used to learn about launching a business and creating mm-hmm. uh, Q Career. Mm-hmm. As Q Career has sort of matured, 
and you know exactly what you are and what you're doing, how are you keeping current with whether it's business practices, marketing, or anything else that is helping you move and scale what you're doing? Sure. So look, I mean, startups are always raising money, right? Like we've raised a friends and family round and we're generating revenue, right? But at the same time, you know, for our next product, like we're going to have to go out for a seed round, right? So we're always talking to investors. We're always looking for investors. Um, you know, I don't know if startups ever really stop um, looking for money, you know, so it's always a fine line between looking for money and also running your your business. But, you know, as far as keeping current, you know, like, so there is, um, so Cooley is a big law firm that's in, you know, a, a, like a lot of the major, like Chicago, San Francisco, LA, New York, Boston, they're in like, you know, almost every major city they have an office, like, they're kind of dripping with money. <laughs> so one of, one of the things that they do is they 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 support education technology a lot. Like they have a lot of education technology um, clients, and it's kind of like part of their passion. So they have this whole team that's kind of like travels around the country and does these pitch competitions. They'll do a pitch competition in Boston. They'll do one in New York. They'll do one in D.C. Right. So. I didn't see any on their calendar for LA, but they're having one in San Francisco. So I'm like, all right, like San Francisco is close enough to LA. You know, I could drive it, right? It's six hours, but still like, you know, I don't have to like necessarily pay money for a flight. So we applied and, you know, and we were accepted. Um, and the pitch competition wasn't for anything, right? So you weren't pitching up, you know, honestly for like, you know, 20 or $50,000, right? It was more of a networking event and kind of getting your name out there, right? So, I mean, even though like we're up and running, like you never stop doing those things. And I had no attachment to like, that it was going to really be anything, right? Like I was like, okay, like, you know, and I got there and like, there are real investors in the room <laughs> and um, like people came up to me after and they're like, wow, like, and, you know, and again, like, you know, because I was pitching, I, I really, again, I had no expectations, but like, even just connections from that, mm -hmm. um, like, has, like, been surprisingly helpful, you know, on so many levels, right? So, I mean, you really just never stop doing that, and almost like every city now, I feel, you know, and I mean, again, it's like, we have the luxury of living in a, you know, a big city, and having access, you know, to big cities, and, you know, I'm your age, you know, so I mean, do I want to be out every night of the week after I, I work like long, hard startup <laughs> hours? Like, not really, you know, like, I don't really want to be out like talking to strangers, like meeting and greeting and shaking hands, you know, but as a startup founder, like you have to. And again, like a lot of those things don't materialize right away. So I mean, it's not like a short term hit or like, oh, yeah, like this person's going to help me like right now I found the, you know, the magic, you know, the magic key. Um, you know, but those relationships start to pay off like further down the road, right? And you always have to be doing that. And, you know, and again, like I really, any ed tech company who wants to see amazing resources, I really encourage you to check out Learn Launch. And, you know, and there's a conference too. So, I mean, again, right now it's like we're, we're recording this during the, you know, the coronavirus outbreak. 
Um, so conferences are on a halt <laughs> right now. Um, but again, that's not going to be true forever. Um, and people are going to have, you know, it'll be, and it'll be interesting to see like different ways that, you know, I'm sure there's someone out there like brainstorming a, 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 an amazing way to do a conference online over Zoom, right? I just, I can't wait to see like, you know, again, this is where innovation comes from, right? Like, okay, like we should all be quarantined. So we're not like killing our older relatives. Um, and, you know, and what are we going to be doing, you know, next, you know, but one thing that we do too, like, you know, being innovative as entrepreneurs is we go to ASU GSV every year, which is a big conference that ed tech companies go to in San Diego. You know, we, is there, do we pay for it? Absolutely not. You know, like not even the startup rate because it was ridiculously expensive, but you know what we do? We go and we sit in the lobby and we tweet and take meetings. Right. So it's like, you know, it's not even like hijacking the hash code or the hashtag, like you're actually there. Right. So we get just as much done. I don't need to be in the room. Like I don't need to pay $3,000 to sit in a room to listen to someone speak. Right. But I want, I need to meet those people who are there. Right. So again, like we just drive down, we get there. Um, you know, so that's what, that's what entrepreneurs have to do. You have to be scrappy. You have to find these places that are holding these things, you know, use your money wisely you know, but look for those hashtags. Like teachers are on Twitter. Like I just can't believe it. When when we were starting our live stream, right? And again, like we're free, right, to schools and students. So one thing that our investors said to us is like, I don't know if you guys should be focusing so much on high schools. Like you're not getting paid and it's hard to get in, right? But we knew that we had to be in high schools, right? Like we couldn't just be a resource for college students. Um so someone has, you know, suggested Twitter, right, to me. They're like, you know, all these teachers are on Twitter. Like, start checking out, like, and I think Google even has a list of all the ed tech chats somewhere with all their hashtags. So I jumped onto, like, the CTE chat, you know, and we actually started formulating a list of all these CTE teachers. So, like, when we do these live streams, like, they just told us the the verticals that they wanted to be in. And now we have this huge list. So it's like, if I have a healthcare one coming up, you know, I'll email like a couple of thousand teachers, you know, and anywhere from like 35 to hundred high schools will show up. Right. Mm. I mean, it was free, <laughs> right? Like we didn't spend money on that, you know, and that's what entrepreneurs have to do. Right. Like you just, you know, I think Twitter, you know, is, you know, is an amazing tool for tech entrepreneurs actually. Right. And connecting with people. So before we go, what is the best advice you've received from another entrepreneur or educator? And what is your advice to those educators who are interested in launching their own company or becoming an educational consultant, et cetera? Sure. You know, I would say, again, like I'm always going to push the networking part, right? So, um, EdTech entrepreneurs, I feel like are very approachable. Um, you know, if it's a teacher, like start looking at some of these EdTech companies that you respect, you know, reach out to them, like maybe even find a mentor, right? And again, that could be all done online, right? Like you, you could be anywhere, you know, and start having these, you know, these conversations and looking for these skills. But, you know, really start to find out like some of the market, like, you know, because I, we've been part of a couple of different accelerators, right? So I know a lot of the ed tech companies out there. So, you know, sometimes I have random people reach out to me, you know, and they'll have an idea. And I'm like, oh, it's similar to, 
you know, what so-and-so is doing, right? And again, like, that's not to discourage them. That's just for them to do their research, you know, to be like, oh, okay, like, but this is how I'm going to do it differently, right? But you also always want to know the other people in the market space that are doing it. So, you know, I would reach out to and talk to as many other ed tech entrepreneurs that are out there um, that, that you can. I mean, it's a really lovely network that's out there of entrepreneurs. Um, you know, there, and there, and always there's, you know, for female entrepreneurs right now, there's a company out there called Chloe Capital and they're partnering with the ECMC foundation and they're doing pitch competitions around the country for female entrepreneurs wow. interested in ed tech. And they're giving away basically like $200,000, you know, per pitch competition. So they had one in New York, LA, New Orleans. I think the next one coming up is in Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, so again, always looking for those opportunities um, to start putting yourself out there. And also, you know, I applied for a lot of those opportunities, you know, and this is what I'll say to most um, ed tech companies who are starting up. Like, I applied to a lot of accelerators and a lot of pitch competitions right when we were just starting out. Like, we were too early, right? But you still have to go through the process, right? And we kind of got dinged every time you know, again, because we were too early, right? So unless you're some like cool AI company, right? <laughs> or have like something like that in your name, you know, a lot of times until you actually show traction, you know, you might not get accepted to an accelerator or a pitch competition, but that doesn't mean like don't apply. And like every time that you aren't accepted, try to get feedback as to why, right? Um, or even if you know that you're too early, like, well, what do I need to show for traction? Right. Because again, traction is very slow. Like everyone's like, oh my God, like where, where you guys are now is amazing. I mean, we started, <laughs> you know, we incorporated in August of 2016. It is now, you know, March of 2020. Like to me, it feels very slow, <laughs> you know, but realistically, that's what it takes. Like it's not, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. Like it is a, it is a slow slog. You know, if you're doing it right and you're going to build a sustainable company, you know, those companies that kind of like shoot out into the moon you know a lot of them quite often will you know flame out if there's no real there there right mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. there are some companies out there that are a bunch of smoke and mirrors um you know and you always have to be innovating but yeah i mean finding those tools finding those people that you can trust finding those mentors all of that is really important especially too because there's gonna be days you know that I get that where people get really down i would say that one thing that entrepreneurs probably don't talk about enough um because going back to your your point it's like oh the cool hip thing and oh an entrepreneur right a lot of people don't think talk about like the mental illness that comes with it right you hear that your idea is awful <laughs> and no so much right wow. so you really have to be strong mentally or have a strong support system for that to be okay you know the rejection can be crushing right and it's also financial rejection too like you're putting your life you know almost on the line you know in order to get this product up and running you know that you have a passion about so you know that self-care and that meant you know i mean no so many entrepreneurs don't talk about that that you know there is you know you're most likely as an entrepreneur you're probably going to go through periods of depression right and it's just because it is not easy right and the people that are making it out there look easy you know i try to be as honest as possible you know about that like there you know there are bad dark days and you know knowing that going in and having that support system i think is really important for entrepreneurs Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Heather, for coming on. Thank you. Awesome. Now, people, 
You know how I do this. This episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Simplecast, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe. I need you to follow. I need you to leave your comments, rate the show, because your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show. And Mm -hmm. I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Heather Wetzler, for coming on and dropping so many gems. And again, I'd like to thank you for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show. As always, people, invest in you, EDU, peace.